welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 372. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we bring you Delicate Parts by A. Hui Lin. A. Hui Lin writes a lot of stories that her children shouldn't read, so she tells them she's a software engineer instead. She doesn't mind if they read her code. Her works previously appeared in Jersey Devil Press Magazine, Defenestration, Travelcast, and a few other places that don't have D's in their name. So without further ado, we bring you Delicate Parts by A. Hui Lin. Ernest was in kindergarten when Jackie the janitor got fired for choking the chicken in the girls' bathroom. That phrase, along with his best friend Bradley Watson's accompanying hand gestures, struck in Ernest's head so hard that whenever he looked at the thing between his legs, all he could see was a bald, pointed bird head, like the ones attached to the roast ducks hanging in the Chinese windows restaurants. He didn't learn what euphemism meant until the third grade, and by then it was too late. His chicken had grown feathers and a beak. When it started to open and close its mouth, he asked his mothers if he could take showers instead of baths. He didn't want it to drown. Bradley told him that penises weren't really chickens, but every time Ernest tried to wish his chicken away, it would stare at him with its bright, beady black eyes, and he would lose his concentration. After a while, he stopped trying and was just glad he hadn't heard the phrase trouser snake first. As Ernest grew bigger, so did his chicken-headed penis. By ten, he had to wear two pairs of underwear to mask the soft clucking sound that came from his pants. At thirteen, while looking at pictures of naked women in feather boas that he found in his father's sock drawer, he discovered that his chicken could crow and spit. That was when he started wearing three pairs of underwear. In his senior year, Ernest asked Dolores Schlunk to the prom. Dolores had a body like a cone of soft-serve ice cream, with droopy rolls of flesh that had a tendency to overrun the waistband of her too tight waffle-yellow pants. Bradley said Ernest should take her up to make out bluff. He said Dolores was a sure thing. He said that Dolores would go down on anyone, anytime, anywhere. Bradley was wrong. It took Ernest nearly an hour to coax Dolores to unlock the doors of her father's Chevrolet and let him back in. He begged and apologized, tapping the window while covering the front of his body with the jacket of his rented tuxedo. An unseasonably chill spring wind blew through the gap of his buttocks to ruffle the feathers of his cock, while a mournful buck, buck, buck punctuated his pleas. Once he negotiated his way back into the car and redonned his discarded clothing, Ernest sat next to a sniffling Dolores, unsure what to say. She hugged herself, pushing up the cleavage in her satin-blue boat-neck dress. Her breasts formed a jiggly shelf that caught the tears as they squeezed past her closed eyelids and plopped down from her chin. Despite his discomfort, he felt the tickle of down stirring against his thigh at the sight. You think I'm a freak, don't you? The word surprised Ernest, because it was Dolores who spoke them, not him. She went on in a small voice, cloggy with snot and shame. 
That's why you asked me to the prom to play a trick on me, because I'm fat and ugly. Her breath hitched on the last words, and for a second they both looked worried that she might melt into an oozy puddle of tears. You're not ugly. It must be confessed that Ernest had to search for that one bit of almost truth. Any other statement contradicting her would have been, alas, an outright lie. But once it was said, he began to see how right he was. Dolores's skin was silken smooth, and she had the fat girl's curse, a pretty face. Dolores's sniffle conveyed a mucous wistfulness. No, you're really not. Your hair looks nice with your dress. Again, not a lie, though not something that had made an impression on Ernest until this very moment. Then why did you do that thing with the, you know? Keeping her eyes averted, Dolores flapped a hand somewhere in the direction of the steering wheel. Bradley said it wouldn't bother you. I hate Bradley Watson. Her lips quivered, her eyes filled again. I wish he'd be nice to me, she wailed as she toppled sideways toward Ernest. He put his arms around her and petted her awkwardly. That seemed to soothe her, and the crying flattened into whimpers and then bubbly hiccups. They embraced for long minutes. Later, when he put the car in gear, she covered his hand with hers, and with a shy smile said, I'm sorry about before. I'll kiss it if you want. But the bird was nesting, and Ernest thought it best not to agitate it. In the following years of aborted encounters with women, Ernest came to appreciate Dolores's straightforward, if somewhat mistaken, reaction. Her horror, in retrospect, had been refreshingly free of anger, contempt, or laughter, and as time went on, his memory of her became more beautiful. It was no surprise to him that others began to notice Dolores's better qualities as well. By the end of senior year, she'd shed the mantle of social pariah, and she'd truly bloomed in college, where the value of kindness, compassion, and a sense of humor rose in direct proportion with the distance from high school. The evening that Maya Forrester flounced out of Ernest's storm room, her derisive snickers echoing down the hall, he lay back on his lonely twin bed and gently stroked his chicken until it cooed, remembering how, long ago, Dolores had let him comfort her and how her bosom had pressed so softly against his. That night, Dolores Schlunk walked into a third-year German study group with all the grace and presence of a prima ballerina, and her fellow German student, Bradley Watson, wondered if he'd been blind all his previous life. Though smitten from that moment on, it took Bradley another ten years to convince Dolores that he was good enough for her. Less kind observers might have said it took him ten years to become good enough for her. You'll be my best man, of course. There was a pause on the telephone line, and Ernest could hear murmuring in the background. I mean, Bradley amended, will you please be my best man? Dolores says I'm supposed to ask, not tell. This time, Dolores's background laughter was clear. Ernest hesitated. I'd only be able to fly in for the wedding. Don't you want someone closer? One of your big city friends? Nah, I don't care about that. But I can't get married without my wingman. 
The nickname made Ernest wince, but he couldn't say no to the happiness in Bradley's voice. It was a rushed affair, the catching of the plane delayed by snow, the last-minute dash to the church, Ernest struggling into suit and vest while the cabbie assumed a world-weary, seen-it-all mean, the final screech and bump of tires on curb accompanied by the squawks of fowl and driver. Ernest tumbled from the cab and zipped his fly, making it to the altar with minutes to spare. As the music began, he turned to face the processional. A woman Ernest had never met before led the way. Her face was long and guarded, with an unwavering forward stare that lent her the stern air of an Easter Island statue. She wore a pink dress that sprouted lace bows from palm tree fronds, designed as are all bridesmaids' dresses, to bring out the loveliness of the bride. Ernest knew her name was Hope, that she'd been Dolores's roommate and best friend and now maid of honor, and that she wasn't much of a talker, according to Bradley. The ceremony went off without incident, free of barnyard noises, although Ernest noticed in the middle that he'd neglected to brush away a few stray feathers that clung to his suit. As his hand flicked to a tuft of white fluff, he saw Hope glance his way, eyes attracted by the movement. Her expression held an aloneness that matched his own. During the first obligatory waltz of the wedding party, Hope stood in the circle of his arms like a gondola oar, unbending while he rotated through the moves of the dance as it attached to a rowlock. It should have been easy to view her as dispassionately as an inanimate object, but his eyes kept straying to her soft pink mouth. He resolved to keep his focus on the satin bow adorning her shoulder, so it wasn't until the coda that he realized she wasn't stealing glances at him as well. Embarrassed to have been caught, their gazes ricocheted off one another, zipping to opposite corners of the room. But when he dared to look at her again, she had the ghost of a smile pressed onto her lips. Champagne? He led her to a bar and scooped up a couple of half-moon glasses, but she grimaced at her first sip and slid it back to the bartender. What kind of scotch whiskey do you have? It was the most words she'd spoken in Ernest's presence so far, and he was surprised to hear the faint lilt of a Highlands accent. Her voice, soft and grave, made the request sound like a librarian's reference inquiry. He and the bartender shared a smile. The bartender held up a bottle of Johnny Walker. She shook her head. Single malt? He hoisted a bottle of Macallan and poured her a glass neat. When Ernest reached into his pocket for his wallet, she shook her head again and passed a twenty to the bartender. I'll have the same, said Ernest, though he rarely drank hard liquor. The alcohol burned all the way down, and he suppressed a cough when it hit his stomach. The warmth spread through his abdomen, and he found himself having another drink, and another, until his body felt encased in a down quilt. Hope matched him drink for drink, and the more she drank, the more she spoke, although haltingly, as if she constantly expected to be interrupted. The scotch haze coalesced about them, a filmy bubble that hid the rest of the room. 
It seemed to Ernest that a scent wafted from hope, mysterious and irresistible, and though he knew it was not true, his smaller brain whispered to his larger one that it was the aroma of roasted corn and bird seed. When he surprised a laugh out of her, the sound burst forward, loud and raucous. She clapped her hand against her mouth and looked around in embarrassment, perhaps too startled to register the answering cock-a-doodle-doo muffled by his pants. Would you, that is, maybe you'd like, or rather, I'd like... Ernest's long, atrophied desires tangled his words into a rubber-band ball while his chicken urged him to mount her in a flurry of feathers and beak, pecking at her until she submitted to his foul lust. Ernest willed his chicken to shut up. Hope looked at him with owl eyes. I... She paused, head tilted to one side, as if taking counsel from her inner voices. I have a room... Here. Again, that little pause. I mean, here in the hotel. Shall we? He couldn't quite bring himself to articulate the words, but she answered him with, Oh, yes. When the two of them stumbled into her room, he absent-mindedly turned on the light by the door, then wondered how he might turn it back off without appearing odd. No, Leave it on, slurred Hope, and he thought her voice reflected his own feelings, all breathless, alcoholic delight tinged with panic. She reached over and flicked the switch, leaning towards him so that he could kiss her on the mouth that had so fascinated him all evening. Between his legs he could feel his chicken swaying drunkenly, and he had a moment of terror that the stupid cock would fail to rise on this, its best shot ever at a public performance. But as soon as it was freed from the confines of his clothing, pants and drawers pushed hastily to his knees, it rallied and stood at attention. Never breaking the kiss, he guided Hope backwards to the bed, tipping them both down onto the soft mattress, her dress hit hitched up above her waist like pink sea foam. She clapped her hands to his ears, holding his face to hers, making the blood echo in his skull. Dimly aware that at any second his chicken might begin to cluck, he returned the gesture and then positioned himself above her, poised at last to experience what they had both only dreamed of. Holy hell, it's a giant chicken, said a man's Scottish brogue. Ernest froze. Clinging to him, Hope whispered, "'Ignore that. Don't stop, please.' "'Lassie, I tell you, it done gonna work. This is a wee little vessel, and that's a big, great chicken,' said the Scottish brogue. Ernest rolled to the side and turned on the bedside lamp. "'No, don't turn on the light,' pleaded Hope. But it was too late. She pushed her dress down, but not before Ernest saw something that took his breath away." Was that? he said. She nodded miserably. It's my little man in a boat. She sat up, shoulders slumped in a protective hunch. Maybe you should go now. Wait. Wait. Ernest turned onto his back and lifted his shirt. His chicken tilted its head and stared at Hope, blinking rapidly. Oh my God! It really is a chicken! she said. That's what I told ye, said her little man in a boat, muffled by her dress. 
Ernest pulled gently at Hope, drawing her down and kissing her again. Much later, after the crowning of his chicken had been joined by a lusty rendition of a Celtic aria, she murmured into the quiet aftermath, I didn't even know he could sing. They were married six months later, and a year after that, Ernest stood beside Hope's hospital bed, holding her hand, while a Scottish brogue screamed, Aye, Captain, she's gone to blow, and not all the lithium crystals in the universe will save her. They'd been worried, but their daughter Faith was born perfectly formed, ten little fingers and ten adorable toes, and all the bits and pieces that would be expected in a baby girl, and none that weren't. And from the moment she could talk, they made sure to explain the facts of life to her as clearly and honestly as possible. But schoolyard myths and the romance of magical thinking can overpower even what we know to be true. When Faith's brother came along, Hope and Ernest found the baby on the morning of his birth under a cabbage leaf. was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Let's close things out this week with our 100-character story winner from our forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the TwitFix section, where we run a contest each week for the best 100-character story and post the winner out on Twitter at the Drabblecast. Here's our winner this week, first-time winner Otto K. When the Emperor died, we were buried alive as a sacrifice. While the royals sob and mourn, we are learning to dig upward. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters? Of course you can. It's easy. Go to forums.dreblecast.org, find the TwitFix section, and make your entry. You might be next week's winner. Follow us on Twitter at the Treblecast. Remember, the Treblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. And we can only do that through the support of listeners such as yourself that donate, folks. Folks that donate to the Treblecast keep this show going. Please consider donating to the Treblecast by going to treblecast.org and clicking on any of our donation options there. $5 a month, $10 a month, any amount you want a month. We greatly appreciate it. Actually, I should say, rely on it, because we do. Our program this week was brought to you by Drabblecast Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Steffen, and David Carvin. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, ignore that. Don't stop. Please. <laughs>